Hello, you're listening to Linguistically Aware, a 30-minute conversation-based podcast about the ways we use, understand, and think about language. My name is Dusha Nikolic, a grad student of linguistics at the University of Calgary, and I'm sitting down with linguists, experts who study language, to talk about the number of roles language plays in our lives. This is CGSW 90.9 FM broadcasting on the traditional territories of all the people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 of Southern Alberta. Today, I talk to Corey Telfer, a researcher and a sessional instructor at the University of Calgary, whose work revolves around Stony Nakoda, an indigenous language spoken in the territory of the Calgary area. This is the second part of our conversation, in which we talked about the ways indigenous languages are preserved and documented. We also talked about his role as a linguist in documentation and preservation, and how the general public can help in this important process. So stay tuned and enjoy our conversation. Corey, you worked with the TLC, the Language Conservancy, longer than I have. Can you share your experience um, in collaborating and working with them? Well, yeah, first of all, I should mention that actually I only worked with the Language Conservancy a few more months before mm-hmm. you did, before you started. Oh, okay. So only since this project started in um, the fall of last year, fall of 2019, and so just over a year now, I've been working with them. And uh, we started off this project with a huge rapid word collection where we brought together their, uh, the, well, the Language Conservancy and Stony Education Authority brought together uh, 30 or more, well, really more elders, but roughly about 30 a day, broken into mm-hmm. about eight groups. And each group had a scribe or usually a linguist was the scribe, but not everyone was a linguist. Scribe, uh, a linguist or someone experienced with writing indigenous languages. In some cases, there are people who've worked with the TLC on other projects. And so they've uh, gained some experience in this area. And um, each group was collecting words from a particular semantic domain. So uh, some people would be asked, these are words for different things about the weather. How do you say these words about weather? Another group might be um, documenting body parts. Another group might be documenting finances and money, things like that, um, or growing things, or um, uh, hunting, or the stars and the, the moon and the sun. So all these uh, different groups uh, managed to gather over 14,000 entries. Now, some of those will be doubles because different groups would have been uh, accidentally getting some words at the same time. But but a huge number of, of words were collected in a very short amount of time. That was over a period of two weeks. So um, that's when I started working with them. And um, uh, but in in my past, I have worked with other First Nations communities as well, um, including the Alexis Nakoda Sioux First Nation up northwest of Edmonton. And also, I've done a small amount of work with the Haida First Nation on Haida Gwaii, um, which was formerly known as the Queen Charlotte Islands. Some people might know it by that name uh, off the west coast of Canada. In, in British Columbia. So, um, yeah, so I've worked with those communities as well, but nothing 
as extensive as this project. This is a very extensive project with lots of different resources being developed and a tremendous number of people involved. So it's been quite, uh, quite unique and, and a really um, positive experience. And uh, the Language Conservancy is really leading the way in doing this kind of, of work where it's uh, really engaging a lot of people all at once. Now that does bring up some complications, but it brings advantages too. Um, whereas the tradition, the linguistic tradition is, is, you know, one linguist working with maybe three or four mm -hmm. different um, fluent speakers, sometimes only one fluent speaker. Um, so it is good to definitely have more than one fluent speaker involved when we're documenting a language. Uh, but, uh, but this is, yeah, a different way of doing things than, than we're used to maybe as linguists. And so it, it, it takes some adjusting, but it's been a really positive experience overall. And I think really good for the language and for the community. Um, so I'm yeah. really looking forward to when some of these resources can be released and, and people can appreciate their hard work and the hard work of their elders. Yeah, I completely agree with you. My next question would be a seemingly simple question, a question that we get asked a lot. Why is it important to document an indigenous language? Yeah, that's that's a question linguists get asked a lot, isn't it? And it's mm -hmm. a very difficult question in a certain way yeah. um, because sometimes it feels hard to justify uh, maintaining a, a language when it's not a you know, it's not a critical human need to speak a specific language. Uh, you know, if we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs or something, um, preserving languages doesn't even fall on the hierarchy, you know, it's not there. Yeah. Um, but uh, I would, and there are a lot of good reasons though to, to document a language. And we have to think to ourselves, well, well, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and staying alive are very important to us humans. There's other things that are also important to us that go well beyond just basic survival. And I think when it comes to language is um, obviously it's a huge part of culture and identity. And um, along with that identity is feeling, I think, feeling valued feeling valued by other human beings is very important. And that does affect Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If people don't feel valued, if they feel like their, their culture and their identity doesn't matter or is less than other people's, obviously then their survival, their very survival is endangered. And we've seen exactly that happen with residential schools here in Canada. And residential, the, the history of residential schools here and devaluing other people's language, culture, and identity has had such a devastating impact on these communities. It can never be overemphasized. And it, because it makes people feel like they're, they're worthless. And so what we're doing here is the opposite of that and making it clear that they are worth a lot and that this, these languages and cultures are just as value, valuable as any other languages and cultures in the world and that they should be preserved and um, taught and maintained in the households and communities where they came from and maybe even learned by others outside of those communities. So yeah. um, I think that is, that is actually the, the number one reason for this, for um, preserving these languages, documenting these languages, but there are other reasons as well. Of course, 
the other reasons are much more academic usually. Yeah. So that, I mean, I think everybody can relate to that, the importance of culture identity and feeling valued. But, um, but us linguists also know um, that language encodes, uh, and, and other people know this too. Now it can get, sometimes people's understanding of this gets, gets uh, and popular culture has kind of twisted this a little bit, but language does encode a lot of how we think. Now, the popular culture version might be that um, language can control how we think. Most linguists feel that it's actually the opposite. Um, language tells us, shows us actually how we're already thinking. So language reflects thought rather than controls thought is how I would frame it. I don't know if, if you agree with that. And, and of course, yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, most linguists do, but there is some yeah. evidence that maybe, maybe some things in language can influence our thoughts a tiny degree or a little bit. Um, but most of us still feel by and large, it's, it seems to be the other way around where our mm -hmm. thoughts influence the way our, our languages are organized. And therefore, when we see, look at how languages are organized, it can tell us about how human thoughts are organized, how humans organize the world cognitively from, you know, how our brains work to some degree. Um, so an example of this is I, I was just reading recently about the Australian language Dirbal, which mm -hmm. um, has noun classes where, where things are divided into different, uh, different, different nouns in the world, different items in the world are divided into four different categories. And famously, one of the categories is, is called women, fire, and dangerous things. So, um, and it was such a iconic name for a class of, of nouns that um, a linguist, a cognitive linguist, George Lakoff wrote a book about it with that title. So um, in, when we come back to First Nations languages, um, we do have noun, noun classes or nouns that are, seem to be divided up differently. And one of the ones that we find in both um, Stony Nakoda here in Alberta and also in the Blackfoot language and the Cree language is animacy. So, and, and mm -hmm. also in Stony Nakoda to some degree, whether things are human or not is, is encoded into language. So there's a difference between hum the way we talk about humans uh, mm -hmm. more than one human than, than when we talk about most animals and also different again than how we talk about animals and humans are different again than how we talk about inanimate objects like um, plants or clothing or books or yeah. anything that doesn't move on its own. So rocks, anything like that. So, so we see that in these languages, they're making uh, the dis distinctions that we all naturally make, I guess, um, in the way we think about the world are actually encoded directly into the language. Now in, in, in English, we don't do that. We, we know there's a difference between animate and inanimate things, but we have to explain it or direct, yeah. or, you know, use our language to talk about it in a different way. Whereas in Stony Nakoda, it's actually implicit in, in the way we use the language and the way mm -hmm. languages. Is this animacy embedded somewhere in the grammar, in the form? Yes, absolutely. So it's embedded in the, mostly in the plurals in mm -hmm. the case of, of uh, both, all of the Dakotan languages, I would say. So the, um, when you talk about more than one of something, you do it differently for humans, for animals, and for inanimate objects. So mm. different, different for all three of them. So there's kind of almost a three-way division there.
This is Linguistically Aware. My name is Dusha Nikolic, and I am talking to Corey Telfer about the indigenous language documentation, preservation, and revitalization. It is interesting that in these languages, certain animals are human-like, and I think this is embedded in grammar of the language. What can you tell us about that? Why are some animals human-like and some others or not or or maybe it's just that they're close to humans mm-hmm. it's it's not exactly clear or sometimes or it could be that they're kind of being um promoted up to a to human like agency or importance also so it might for example um i i haven't heard it for sure but eagles might might follow that pattern mm-hmm. as well um and um at least one of the words for bear, it seems as optional. It, it normally wouldn't be using yeah. that, the human plural, but it can be. Um, so it just uh, depends on the situation. And then some animals like moose, it never, it can never be put in that human category. It just doesn't sound right to speakers and they reject it. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so it's sort of unpredictable as well, I should mention. And, and it's not clear exactly why one animal is has gone one way and another animal a different way or why uh, and it requires a lot more work um for us to look at stories for example and and looking at how people use the language in everyday life to kind of understand for example in that case of bear when when might a bear actually be given a bit more uh given this human ending or is it ever actually done in in real language or in it's it's my guess is it's probably very, very rare mm-hmm. based on, on what I've heard from elders and just what I've heard of the language also. And uh, it's probably very, very rare. But, you know, speakers will accept it and, and say it's, you know, it is, it's possible. So, yeah, um, yeah really interesting uh, thing going on there where some animals, yeah, are, are almost human-like, are treated mm-hmm. like humans in, in, some, in one way by the language. Um, with horses, it's quite clear, you know, they're very important to the culture yeah. and have been for a long time. And it's my understanding that dogs actually played a similar role to horses mm. uh, before horses were introduced and, and continue to be important. But dogs were, uh, I, as I understand, pack animals, uh, mm. not pack, not, I shouldn't say pack animals, dra- draft animals, really. They would be used mm. for, for pulling um, uh, things around. They would be used to help, you know, so they were a great assistance in that way. Um, although I don't, as far as I know, they probably weren't used traditionally for hunting, but uh, they, they may have played other roles as well besides. Yeah, yeah that would be a very good question to ask an elder. Yeah, absolutely, and, yeah. And, and I guess that language is an expression of culture and it is essential. So this is where the answer to the question why comes into play. Well, I just want to say, again, with uh, with looking at how languages work, we can learn a lot more about human thought and and cognition. And another element is that the Dakotan languages um, seem to encode, well, a lot of people say um, diff- two different kinds of verbs, like actions and states. So yeah. things like states are, are usually like um, just a, a condition that you're in, like like what color you are, or if you're painted a certain color, um, or if you're tall or if you're short, but also more temporary things like if you're wet or if you're dry, 
things like that. Whereas um, actions would be more like um, uh, running, jumping, walking, you know, those kind of things where you're actually moving. However, uh, and English doesn't make a distinction. They're all just verbs for us. However, uh, an, another linguist, uh, specifically Marianne Methuen, has argued that um, that this could be kind of reconceptualized a little bit as as encoding volitionality. Volitionality mean, just means whether you want to do something or whether you're doing something on purpose or whether it's happening um, against your will or uh, or out of your control, whether you have control over it, whether someone has control over it or whether no one has control over it or, or you don't have control over it. So, um, and there's some good arguments to be made. I think that, that these languages do encode volitionality, although, um, you know, there's, there's of course, uh, certain verbs that break this pattern that don't, that don't really seem to fit the pattern, but um, it is really an interesting area. And we, it, we just don't really know at this point, we need more research in order to find out. And it's, uh, there are other languages, of course, that do this as well outside of uh, the Siouan language family. But um, again, they, every language shows us some of these insights into how, how things are divided mm -hmm. up. And of course, in English or other languages, we can express whether something is done on purpose or not. Usually we have to say on purpose. So-and-so did this on purpose or by accident, you know? So we have to use these extra words, but it seems like in, in the Dakotan languages, this is automatically built into everything you say uh, every, every time you use a verb. Mm -hmm. sort of, uh, it, it can be implied to some degree. As I said, it doesn't always work out, but in many cases it does. And it's, it's, I think it's a, a really interesting area of, of future research and, um, and just understanding, coming to a, an understanding of different ways of, of seeing the world too, where it is broken down more in, possibly in this way but that is still somewhat controversial and and we're still coming to an you know be a long time coming to an understanding on that another idea is that um, these languages are sometimes called topic comment languages or topic prominent languages where uh sometimes it's or frequently it seems when someone's talking about something they they introduce a general topic first and then say something about it and japanese is apparently also a language that works like this so um, you could almost think of it as maybe a, also a general specific kind of language. You talk, you introduce the general area that you're talking about and then say something specific about it. So the example is, is something like uh, me, I, I stole the horses. Whereas in English, we just say I stole horses or I caught horses, something like that. But in, in uh, Lakota, you might say, you know, you introduce the topic first, me, I'm, I'm, saying something mm -hmm. about myself. I was the one who caught the horses without necessarily meaning any extra emphasis. It's just the natural way you say, I, I caught the horses. Um, so yeah, this is a, and this is a very advanced area. I'm, I'm not really uh, in a position to say anything specific about Stony Nakoda on, on that area, but it's an area that needs more research and, and really again, sheds more light into the possible ways that, that humans can um, think about the world or, or speak about the world or express themselves about the world. So tells us a lot about human cognition and, and then just the, the diversity of languages and the way languages can work. Language is very complex and we still don't really know how it works. Uh, we know some basic things, but really very little. There's still, as far as I understand, no computer that can emulate what we humans do by the time we're two or three years old. So it's uh, it's really an, an interesting area and um, an area of of human knowledge. I think that's very important for us to understand really about who we are as as people, 
it's not gonna, you know, probably make a difference to whether we um, survive to the next day, whether we know these things about human language. But as I mentioned before, there's a lot more to being human than just surviving. It's also about um, gaining knowledge, understanding how the world works and, and understanding ourselves. And the more yeah. we know, I think, I think the, the better, the better we can do, the better societies we can create. I most certainly agree. Uh, Corey, can you tell me who do you think should be involved in language documentation? Yeah, that's a really interesting question that I really haven't heard before. But I, I mean, the first answer is, of course, everyone should be involved. But, uh, but then maybe, you know, it, you, it does take specialized knowledge to do a lot of the tasks that need to be done. But when I say everyone, first of all, it, it does come down to uh, the the number one thing about language documentation that I, I haven't mentioned so far is that the real goal for a lot of the work we're doing isn't just documentation. I think the end goal is revitalization, mm -hmm. making sure these languages don't disappear. And documentation is just one of the things we need to do that can help revitalize a language. It gives um, learners resources to use to revitalize that language. So, um, and so when everyone's involved, I think the, the, the one thing that everyone can do is try and learn a little bit of a language or, or promote others learning that language, give others the resources they need to learn a language because although learning a language in a way doesn't take a lot of resources or, or doing linguistics work, we don't need um, to build, you know, like uh, nuclear reactors or what do they call the... Uh, the these multi-billion dollar infrastructures that they need to build to do a lot of sciences we need very little yeah. you know we don't need um lots of resources and tools and equipment and yeah all we need ones. is a room yeah yeah usually a computer a microphone a camera some paper you know we don't yeah. necessarily need a lot of you know actual physical objects but when it comes to revitalizing languages that takes time it takes people time to learn languages and time of course uh yeah. means that they're spending time learning language and not doing other things so they need to be supported you know often some degree financially and and so that's where other another place people can come in in, in supporting that is recognizing the time and effort it takes to learn these languages means that that some resources are are helpful to doing that of course but then beyond beyond that if we get a little bit more specialized i think um uh, especially people who come from endangered language communities, whether that's indigenous languages, but it can also be languages like um, Scottish Gaelic in, in uh, Nova Scotia, in Scotland also, but in, in, right in Canada, in, in Nova Scotia, especially in Cape Breton Island, is also an endangered language, um, and they're doing a lot of work there to revitalize it right alongside the, the Mi'kmaq or Mi'kmaq language that's spoken also in that area. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so anyone from an endangered language community can um, of course start learning your language from your elders from people that know it but also I, I have to recommend that in some cases I think it is useful not for everyone but for certain people who might be interested to take some courses in yeah. learning a bit more about how languages work can be very very helpful and both the language conservancy offers courses specifically for just a few languages at this time, uh, as, as far as I understand, I think Lakota, they've done work though also for uh, 
I believe Cowlitz on the west coast of British Columbia mm -hmm. and working towards, uh, I think, things of this nature for Crow and other languages as well. And, and hopefully eventually Stony Nakoda. But also here in Alberta, we have the Canadian Indigenous Languages and Literacy Development Institute, um, more easily known mm -hmm. as SILDI, which is based out of the University of Alberta, where I uh, attended and taught for some time. So um, SILDI, I have to highly recommend it. It's usually in the summertime and it offers all kinds of courses in education, um, indigenous, indigenous studies, or native studies and um, and linguistics, and uh, these are university level courses. Mm -hmm. They count as university credit, so people can put them towards a degree if they're working on a degree. And but they uh, and they also have a uh, what's called a CLC or community linguist certificate, where they help uh, if if someone takes these six courses required for that, they become they get a certificate that is recognized in Alberta and I believe in the Northwest Territories. Um, saying that they have taken these courses and they they have become a community linguist. So I, I think that's very useful. Uh, so it gives some very useful tools and skills and also a network of people um, for, for people interested in doing this kind of work. And SILDI typically serves all of Western Canada. Uh, they, especially a lot of people come from the Northwest Territories, but also uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and British Columbia, as well as Alberta. So it's a fantastic uh, uh, Institute in the summer and and in some cases Sildi has gone to other community right to First Nations communities to teach in, uh, these kind of courses in the community to try and help um, local people get the skills they need to to work on their own language. So these kind of things I think are very useful because unfortunately language is as I mentioned earlier, although we all use it every day actually understanding how it works ten is somewhat complicated. And so it, it is, it can be quite technical. And then also because we're using computers to do a lot of this work, that can also be technical in a different way. So I think it is, you know, it's, it's specialized skills and, and we sometimes have to take some time to gain those specialized skills. Um, so, so it is useful to get those skills and then become, it can make someone, help someone become a bit more useful to their, to their language community in revitalizing and documenting the language. Yeah, I completely agree. But uh, what's elders' role in all of this? What should they do? Well, I think if they just make themselves available, that's that's mm -hmm. really all we can ask of them, right? Just their time, sharing their time and their knowledge with us, um, and and teaching. Like in the case of Buddy, he is actually a teacher uh, teaching the language outside of university in. Um, the some of the local communities uh in the in the bow valley region so uh banff canmore cochrane for example and uh and we would like to see courses uh there i we don't know exactly what's going on for adult courses right now in the stony nakota community because m i would say any adult over the age of 40 almost certainly speaks the language anyone who grew up in the mm -hmm. community and even over 30 uh, there are a lot of fluent speakers but um, but below that, you know, younger than 35 and certainly younger than 30, not as many. So there, there is a need there for, for teaching as well. And so elders, if they're willing to teach, that's really fantastic. But we all know that I think everybody who has experience trying to teach, it's, 
it's not for everyone, right? It takes special yeah. personality and sometimes special skills as well. So, um, but, but yeah, that's another role of elders. And, um, but I think that biggest role is just being available, being willing to share their knowledge of their language. Corey, thank you for this. Thank you very much. I won't keep you anymore. I just want to ask you, what are your future future plans? Well, um, I am planning on finishing up all these resources for this first part of this uh, project for the Stony Nakoda First Nation. And it's my hope that there will be um, more work in the future with, with language. The work is never done. Dictionaries are never done. We know that even for our English language, which has been documented for hundreds of years, every year the Oxford English Dictionary is still adding yeah. new words to the dictionary. Mm -hmm. So this, our, as linguists, our work is never done. There's always more to do. There's always more to understand. So I'm, I'm hoping to just continue on with that and, uh, and continue teaching at the University of, of Calgary if I, if I can and just continue on. I think that's, that's my, my goal for the moment. Um, and uh, yeah go from there. Thank you, Corey, for being a wonderful guest, for answering all my questions, and for a two-part episode. This was the first one, and I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you, and great to see you again. That was a phenomenal Corey Telfer. I immensely enjoyed our conversation, and this was the second part of our entire conversation and the sixth episode of Linguistically Aware. If you want to contact Corey, you can reach him at Corey.telfer at newcalgary.ca. If you want to know more about linguists based in Calgary, you may reach them at calgarylinguistics.ca. If you want to listen to the upcoming episodes of Linguistically Aware, go to the CJSW website, hit program, hit Linguistically Aware, and make sure to hit subscribe. You're in the right place, do not change the frequency. Stay tuned to the CJSW 90.9 FM. See you soon.